Before we get into the passage, I'm going to give you a little bit of my background. Uh, we talked about this with the campus movement students yesterday, but just so you guys know where I'm coming from as we step into this passage. Uh, my wife and I attended a small Christian college. Uh, it's called San Diego Christian College, way, way, way back in a whole previous generation. Um, that's a joke, but it's way back, uh, about 25 years ago. Uh, she got a degree in counseling psych, I got a degree in business administration, graduated, uh, ended up going into the workforce, and I had no intention to go into missions. I started working as an accountant, worked my way up to CFO of the uh, multinational Dutch organization, worked a lot in the Netherlands, a lot in Germany, a uh, fair amount in France, and we never got a missionary call. During that time, we were reading our Bibles, and we were faithful members of our local church, Claremont Emanuel Baptist Church in San Diego, California. And we started uh, getting out of debt, we started buying cars, we started doing other things, but we were faithful in our local church. And I praise God to this day that through this book and through the encouragement and leading of our church elders, we ended up getting our missions call. That's how I've seen most missionaries get their call. Very few people get a missionary call when we start to think of something supernatural. They read their Bibles, and they have the confirmation of their local church elders. And that's what happened with us. And uh, we walked away from all of that whole future, all of the things that we were potentially going to do with our lives, and we ended up heading to the country of Papua New Guinea. Uh, it's on the far side of the world. Uh, if you find Australia and you go up, it's the country on the right, and we ended up in that country. And so when we got there, we decided if we're going to leave all of this stuff behind, we want to go someplace where the gospel has never been before. We want to go to what we would call today an unreached language group. And so we got there, and uh, in order to reach an unreached language group today, you have to learn two languages. You have to learn the language of the country where that people group is located, and then actually learn the language of that specific group. And so we learned the national language of the country. That's the language of Papua New Guinea. It's a Melanesian pidgin. It's got some Hawaiian roots to it. And then I'll never forget, the mission leadership came to us, and they handed us a list of seven people groups who had been asking for missionaries for five years or more. They don't make the list unless they've been asking for five consecutive years. And we looked on that list, and there was one people group on there that had been asking for missionaries for 12 years. 12 years asking for someone to come to bring the little white pills so their babies would stop dying and to bring this talk that they had heard about that had landed in another village and had totally changed their world, and they no longer feared death. We want that. And so we talked to the mission leadership and we asked the pilot to bring the plane around a week later and myself and my two coworkers and some mission leadership guys, uh, we, as the plane landed, pilot got out, it was a little small Cessna 206 and uh, the pilot said, guys, I've got good news and bad news. <clears throat> the good news is it's a wonderful flying day. The bad news is the airfield I was going to drop you off at and you were going to hike into this village called Tuwadi. Uh, that airfield got six inches of rain overnight. You are not going to land there because it is completely flooded. What's your second choice? And so we pulled out the paper, and there was this people group on there called the Yembe Yembe people. And the Yembe people were dominant, hostile people. Uh, they had cannibalized and beaten down for about 40 years, not in the last 10 years before we got there, but they'd beaten up all the other tribes around them, so they were the dominant group in the area. But they had also heard about the gospel landing in another village, and they, would want it, they wanted for someone to come to bring this message to them. So for seven years, they were faithfully writing letters, sending someone out with letters. And so uh, we quickly, I scribbled out a note on a piece of paper, and it basically said, we're coming to your village today. Please be kind. Like, that was it. And rolled up the note. We took a water bottle, emptied out the water, put the note into the water bottle, and we took off in the 206 flew for about 45 minutes over where the map said that this was Yembe Yembe territory and we could see houses and little hamlets and villages down there. And then we saw an opening. The pilot dropped the plane down to about 100 feet over the trees, turned the plane on its side, and I was sitting in the passenger seat, opened up the window and threw the water bottle with the note out. And I'll never forget, there's this little kid who's booking it to catch the water bottle. And I'm thinking, we're going to kill the first Yembe Yembe we meet. It's going <laughs> to drill him in the head, he's going to die, it's going to be horrible. 
Kid wasn't fast enough, water bottle hits the ground, and then we see people coming in from the jungle. We see them running and taking the note out and waving it, and we do a few circles over top, and then we keep flying. And we fly for another half hour till we get to a uh, airfield that was closest to them, and then we load up in a motor canoe. Motor canoe is a canoe about as long as this stage, and it's got an outboard motor on it, and we start motor canoeing to get back to Yembiembi territory. And we motor canoe for seven hours, and then we pulled into Yembiembi as the sun is going down. And in Yembiembi, if they like you, uh, they what they don't do if they don't like you, that's another story. But anyways, um, the Yembis, they when we got out of the canoe, they grabbed us, held our arms, and they take a huge hunk of mud they shove it into your face and they push it all the way down to your Adam's apple. Then they take flower petals and then they throw those at your face and it sticks to the mud. And now you're beautiful. Now you're ready to come into the village. And that's what happened to us. And so it was kind of a strange, unique greeting, but that was what happened. Uh, we stepped into Yembi Yembi and we start taking video and we start taking pictures and we stayed for three days and got to know this area, this language, this people. And then we went back out the same way we came in and we showed the pictures uh, to our wives. We sent an email off to our home churches and we said, this is where we think God has us going. And they confirmed that and we went back in the same way and we told the Yembis, we're going to come to be your missionaries and we're going to do four things. We're going to learn your language and culture. We're going to learn to speak like you speak because the message we carry is too important to get wrong. Number two, we're going to teach you how to read and write in your own language. In Yembi Yembi, they had, didn't have an alphabet at that point, so we had to develop that for them. And then number three, we're going to take this really important book, and we're going to translate that book into your language. And then finally, the last thing we're going to do is we're going to teach you the meaning of that book. Some of those things are going to happen simultaneously, but we're going to do all four of those things, and we're not going to leave until we do those things. We're going to be here for many years. And the Yembis were pretty excited. Um, and then they started getting down to the brass tacks, and they said, okay, if you're going to come and you're going to live among us, we don't want you to come as outsiders. We don't want you to be like those people who go and come. And they were talking about government officials and tourists who would helicopter in and trade with them on occasion. We want you to be adopted into clans, into families. And so what that means in Yembi Yembi, there's four clans. There's the ostrich clan, the eagle clan, the black cockatoos, and the toucans. They're all birds. And so they looked at me, I'm pretty tall, I played college basketball, and so my nose is a little bit crooked, and they said, you're definitely in the ostrich clan. So they, they put me in the ostrich clan, my wife has long blonde hair, so they put her in the eagle clan, uh, another one of the ladies on the team had tight, curly brown hair, and so they put her in the black cockatoo clan. They put us all in clans based on our physical features. And then they came to us and they asked us uh, how we had gotten married in the cold country. The cold country is any place outside of Papua New Guinea. And we described how we had gotten married and they said, okay, you think you're married, but you're not really married. And so they made us get remarried and I had to pay the bride price for her and all this other stuff. And they tied our arms together with the special black vine. So I've been married twice, both times to the same woman. But um, we did all of these things. And then finally, uh, about three weeks into the time there, the Yembis came to us at night and they said, uh, they asked the men if we'd ever killed a wild boar. And one of the guys had killed a, a pig somewhere in Minnesota. And we said, no. And they said, okay, have you ever killed a wild boar at night with a spear by yourself? We've definitely never done that. And they came up with a new name for us because in Yembi Yembi, a boy changes into a man when he kills a wild boar at night with a spear by himself. He is forever a boy. He's not allowed to marry. He's not allowed to go into the house of men until he's killed a boar at night with a spear by himself. And so they came up with a new name for us. You know what they called us? Overgrown boys. We were these large-bodied guys that somehow had been allowed to marry and father children, but we had never done these things. And so we, we started learning how to hunt wild boar, and we were learning their language simultaneously. And guys, we did all of these things, not so that we could be these incredible cultural insiders, but so that when the gospel came, it came from somebody that they respected, somebody that they knew, somebody that had lived with them, somebody that had done all of the things that they had done. This wasn't the outsider's American message. This wasn't the God of those people who parachuted in. These are one of ours. Aren't you thankful for the way that God sent Jesus Christ to us? 
He didn't stand in heaven and sprinkle tracks down on us. He didn't send angels. He didn't work through translators. He sent His own Son. And His Son came and He ate our food and He learned our language and He was in every way like we are, yet without sin. That's the model of our God. This ministry, this way that He loves people and He touches people. And finally, we got to the point after about a year and a half, two years, to where we could speak their language clearly. We could tell jokes and people would laugh. If you ever want to know where your, lang- or where your missionaries are at linguistically, ask them to tell a joke and see if anybody laughs. We could tell jokes. We could tell stories. We could speak with all the color, the metaphor, the simile of that, that language, the BCS language, the Yembe Yembe people. And we told them in December, one more moon and we're going to bring this talk. We're going to start into the fourth thing. We put them through three classes at that point of being able to read and write in their own language. I was in charge of translating the Pentateuch, so I was ahead in the translation. And then we started in on January 5th, 2008 into the message that would forever alter that people group. And we didn't start in Romans. We didn't start in Matthew. We started in Genesis 1.1. And we started laying out for them this God who was so different than their gods. This God who creates all things good. Who does things that they just cannot believe. And He does them perfectly the first time. And He makes man. And then He makes woman. And He gives her to man. And He does all of these things because He loves His creation. We had a huge canoe in the teaching house. We don't have a church building. We have a teaching house, and the church gathers in the teaching house. And so the, the teaching house at that time, huge canoe in the front. We had about 1,000 people a day coming to the teaching, and we took all of the different foods in the Yembe world. Bananas. They have about 17 different kinds of bananas, 14 different kinds of sago. Laid them all out on the canoe. Look at this wondrous variety. Then the next day, by that time we had an airfield and the airplane flew in foods that they'd never seen before. Foods from Australia. Apples, oranges, pears, slicing them up into small pieces so a thousand people can all have a taste of this food that they... Does God eat food? No! Why did He make such incredible variety? Because He loves you. He loves me. This is the nature of our God. And bringing this God of the Bible into intense conflict with their gods because the Yembis believed they had gods they have spirits and it's the wise Christian it's the wise missionary that knows what they're speaking into before they bring the gospel no man is a blank slate everyone has ideas but it's the individual who knows their audience the right pastor the campus leader those who understand what their roommates and those missionaries who know the worldview of the people they're speaking into and the Yembe started falling in love with this God who is so different than their God. And finally, we get to Genesis chapter 3. And what we would do with the Yembe Yembe is we would teach and we would act things out. We would teach and we would act things out because there's no movies, there's no MGM, there's no Fox. There's just us and bed sheets and all sorts of props. And so uh, it was kind of riveting entertainment for them. And we taught on the fall of mankind. We taught and we taught. And they said, no, 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 show us, show us. And the Yembies, the Yembies aren't like you guys. You guys are a normal North American audience. You know when to laugh. You know when to, it's appropriate to cry, all that kind of stuff. The Yembies, if the Yembies like what you're saying, anytime while you're teaching, they'll yell from anywhere, keep talking, this talk is good to my ballet. And they'll just yell that out. And everybody, yeah, keep talking. And this, this is happening. If they don't like what you're saying, because the belly is the heart of their emotions. In America, it's our heart. My heart is broken. My heart is full. That's what Americans say. Theirs is the belly. If they don't like what you're saying, they'll yell from anywhere at any time, shut your mouth. I'm sick of this talk. I'm about to throw this talk up. Because again, it's coming from their belly. So you know really well how well you're doing when you're teaching. You get instant response. Feedback is quick and furious. And so we're teaching and we get to the fall of mankind and say, no, 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 act it out. And so I was Satan. I had this black bed sheet on and my coworker's wife was Eve. And we're walking around in a circle and the Yembies are getting closer and closer and pressing in to where we've got about a five foot square and you've got a thousand people breathing and starting to yell at my coworker's wife, Eve. Hey, smart lady, look at your belly. Where did all that food come from? You're going to turn your back on God. He did all these good things for you. Don't do it. And she's walking around and we're talking to her. And I'm talking to her and saying, Eve, 
Eve, take the fruit and your eyes will be open and you'll be just like God. And I mean, the Yembies, these are unsaved people saying unsaved things, just raining down stuff on me and her. My coworker's wife reaches out, she grabs, and one of the ladies gets up and grabs her hand and pulls her hand down. And we have to stop the skit. And she goes, she's going to eat the fruit. I know, but the talk goes on. No, she can't do it. And so then finally, everybody sits down. She reaches out, she grabs the fruit, she takes a bite, and a thousand people go quiet. And we start talking about the ramifications of the fall of mankind. What happened in that moment? See, in Yembe Yembe, most, about 18 to 20% of our girls, when they had their first baby, they died. Everyone in the village had an aunt a mother, a grandmother who had died in childbirth. And the ramifications of sin, that from dust you came into dust you will return. These are real things that are real in the Yembe's life, but there's also this promise in Genesis chapter 3 that someday there will be one coming. There will be one coming who will make things right between God and man again. And we had a branch that we ripped off of a fig tree right outside the teaching house, and we hung that branch from the podium that I was teaching from. And that branch, as it went down to smaller branches and it went down to leaves, and the leaves over the three months that we taught turned from green to brown to black, and then they fell off. The promise of God that when our ancestor broke out from God, that would trickle all the way down to us today. But someday, there's going to be one coming who has the power to put the branch back in the tree, to make things right again. And I, I wouldn't have believed it if I hadn't have been there. The next day we teach on Cain and Abel, and one of the Yembis stands up in the back as we introduce this guy, Cain, this son of Adam and Eve, and he says, wait, 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 stop the talk, stop the talk. Is he the one? And I said, well, what do you mean? Is he the one who's going to put the branch back in the tree? No, he's not the one. And I mean, the envies, again, they're raining insults down on this poor guy, and the ones who are brave enough. Actually, this is a good question. I had the same question. And every Old Testament character that we introduced, whether it was David or Solomon, Abraham, Isaac, somebody stood up and asked the question, is he the one? Is he the one who's going to make things right? And guys, we finally got to the New Testament. And when we got to the start of the New Testament, and this is, this is the beauty of the way that the Scriptures are put together, the trajectory, the whole thrust of the Old Testament is for the one to come. That's the whole the basis of the Old Testament is to push for that one. Is it Solomon? Is it David? No, it's not. He falls, he falls, he falls. And finally we get to John. And we translated the book. We had about half of the book of John translated. And we read the first chapter of the book of John. And if you read the first chapter, John the Baptist sees Jesus walking alongside the river Jordan. And he says, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And we got about 10 Yembiemis that stand up. Wait, 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 wait. Lili Jono li daromonima, lili dokinomima lo omonamadguanis. This one that Jono is speaking of, is he the one or are we waiting for another? Guys, it's a privilege of my life to say, no, he's the one. He's the one. In fact, he's the reason that we left our homes. He's the reason that we left our families. This whole talk is all about that one. Oh, man, and I mean, the Yembies are yelling in the back, throwing stuff. Stop the talk of John who dunks in water. Who cares about him? Tell us about this one. <laughs> and we start teaching, and we start teaching about this one who is so different, this one who heals people. Man, physical deformities all over the place out in Yembe Yembe. If Jesus was here... He'd touch your eyes and you'd be able to see. If Jesus was here, that leg of yours that was permanently bent from the time you were born, he would make things right. This Jesus who could do all these things, and he didn't hang out in the capital of Papua New Guinea, he didn't hang out in Jerusalem, he hung out with poor people. He hung out with people like the Yembiembis. Guys, there's a reason why the last 3,100 or so unreached language groups are the last ones. It's not random. People think, oh, they're all in the 1041. No, no, no. They're spread out in various places. You know why the last 3,100 unreached language groups are the last ones? They have the hardest languages to learn. They're in countries that are hostile to the gospel. And that physical environments, for people to go in there, they're going to have to adjust their bodies. You're going to have to catch malaria a few times. 
You may catch dengue fever. You may have to go through some pretty hard physical things. The reason certain places on the planet are still unreached, certain languages, is because they're the hardest places left. The easy way to say it is, the easy places have been reached. It's the hard ones that remain. If the gospel is ever going to make it to some of these places, it will take saints, it will take some of the young men and women sitting in these pews today that walk away from dreams, walk away from ambitions, go to the hard places. And the Yembis intuitively knew that Jesus would be hanging with people like us. Jesus would be attracted to people like us. And guys, I don't have time to get into the full gospel narrative on um, April 21st when we presented the gospel for the first time. And we had 47 people at that point that understood who Jesus was and that he had saved them from their sins by his work on the cross. And for the first time in the history of the Yembe Yembe world, there were men and women who called God their father that were brought in and were part, their sons and daughters, heirs to the kingdom as the same as every one of us who understands the gospel clearly. And we stayed for eight more years after that to see that church grow to where it's almost about 500 now and they're starting to send out their own missionaries. They have their own elders, their own deacons. Nina and I will be back there in two weeks. I go back every, uh, every year to check on that church. And we came back to the United States in 2016 when that church was firmly established uh, and by God's grace, we continue to go back until we are too old and feeble to get on the airplane. So that's the background that we're coming into this chapter with, or this passage. So if you've got your Bibles, we're going to turn over to 10, uh, Romans 10, 13, and look at the model for how the gospel will reach the ends of the earth. Paul lays out, and we went through this in Sunday school, how Paul measures the Great Commission, how he measures the advancement of the Great Commission. Paul measures it by churches, and he sees churches as the metric for whether a place is reached or unreached. Does that mean there aren't needs? There are needs everywhere. There are needs and significant needs, and we continue to press into those things. But for the advancement of the gospel to the ends of the earth, Paul lays out, so to speak, his formula for how this is done in this passage. Just three, uh, three verses here. So let's read this together, and then we'll dive into some points. It says this in Romans 10, 13, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on Him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in Him whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. This is the Word of God. And so we look at this passage, and if you're taking notes, the first point on this is the God who saves. The God who saves. The only God does the saving. It's a sweet and wonderful truth that every Christian should rejoice in, that regardless of your income, regardless of your sex, regardless of your citizenship, your jail record, your number of divorces, uh, regardless of any amounts of earthly sins that would condemn you, that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. None of our background matters. Number of, none of our lists of sins matter. The Lord saves those who He has chosen. And we see in this, the Lord does the saving. It's an act that is done to someone, not that they have achieved. You never hear a Christian give a testimony, you never hear a mature Christian give a testimony that starts with, when I understood the facts... When I was smart enough to grasp the truth, no, no, no. Christian testimonies, Christians who understand salvation, they understand that I was saved from my sins. When the Lord broke into my world and rescued me from the pit. I remember my mother reading me a book when I was a child. And the book had a, kind of a salvation analogy and it had this pictorial thing of this grandfather reaching out and the son was going down the rapids and as he's going down the rapids the grandfather reaches out and the grandson reaches out and their hands touch and he pulls him in and that's the analogy of salvation brothers and sisters that's not a good analogy you know what the better analogy is you're at the bottom of the lake and you are decomposing fish are taking bites out of you 
and life is breathed into you and you come to the surface alive in you. You had no part in your salvation. Only God saves sinners. This is not a man-wrought event. This is a God-wrought event and only God does the saving. You see, for thousands of years, and even more so today, there's this idea that humans are in kind of innately good. We were born good and something through our upbringing, something through our background turned us bad. We're kind of born good and most people are intuitively good. If you listen to a lot of country music, you get the idea that everyone's good. But the Bible teaches the exact opposite. Is that the problem isn't your upbringing. The problem isn't your parents. The problem isn't what you experience, good, bad, or ugly, coming up. The problem is actually within you. The problem is actually you. You were born twisted because you're a son and daughter of Adam. You're born tilted away from God. You were born with an irreconcilable difference. So the problem isn't outside of you. The problem is actually within you. True Christians realize that there's nothing within themselves that saves, but rather an alien righteousness. This is how the Reformers and the Puritans would speak of righteousness. It's something outside of us, an alien righteousness, something or someone that must save us if we're to be saved. The Yembis, when we presented Christ as this one and we finally got into the book of Romans and we started talking about the Savior, the one who would save us from their sins, they had no concept of this. They don't have such a thing in their language. There's no word for Savior. So you know what they call Christ? They call him the bridge man. See, in Yembi Yembi, there's these big rivers about as big maybe bigger in some places, little creeks actually, but there's some massive ones where you have to drop trees across them to cross. Otherwise, you have to hike for days to get around this river. And so they'll drop a tree across, and a tree is really thick at the base of it, but the further out it gets, it gets really skinny. And there are old people and sick people and children that also have to cross that don't have the strength or the agility or the sure-footedness at the very end of the tree to get across. Do you know what they do? They name a strong man within the group that's with them, and they have that strong man take the people who are too weak, too unable in of themselves to get to the other side, and he puts them on their back, and he carries them from one side to the other. And you know what the job of the people who are riding on the bridge man's back is? Hold still. Hold still. Don't do anything. The more you do, the more likely it is that we go in the water and we perish. And this is the one that they saw Christ as, the one who takes us from Satan's side to God's side, the only one who can save. But then there's this two-part, the second half of this passage that Paul kind of speaks to. God does the saving, and there's a branch of theology that will press. Well, if God only does, is God's, God's the only one that does the saving, what part do we have? Human beings have no part of God is the only one who does the saving. Well, that's not true. You haven't read through the full passage. You see, Paul will press into this when he presses into the means of salvation. If you're taking notes, this is point number two, the means of salvation. You see, God always uses tools. He uses means. Sometimes we see in the Old Testament, he uses donkeys He's actually used those to speak to men. Sometimes he uses burning bushes. Sometimes he uses angels. But most often, we see God using Christians. God using those saints who understand the gospel, and he sends them to places. He uses Jonah's, and he uses Paul's, and he uses Philip's, and he uses these men, these women, who will take the gospel around the world. God uses means. Listen to how Paul explains this. Listen to how he lays this out. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? These are rhetorical questions. If you don't remember what a rhetorical question is from high school English, a rhetorical question is a question that everybody knows the answer to. Well, they can't. If someone doesn't go, if someone doesn't preach, there's no way they can understand the gospel. There is a school of thought 
that, well, surely God will make a way for those people that never hear the gospel. And brothers and sisters, Romans 1 stands in stark opposition to that bad theology. If someone doesn't hear the gospel, never has the chance to hear the gospel, there's enough evidence that Romans chapter 1 teaches us to show us that there is a God, but not enough evidence to be saved. Someone has to go. This is why he presses this so hard. How are they going to hear unless someone goes? This is where we see the goers, the call of those who will go. John Piper This is your homework till next year's missions conference. Buy the book, Let the Nations Be Glad. Let the Nations Be Glad by John Piper. That book will lay out, and John Piper will pull this terminology from this passage that we're into today, that there are goers and there are senders. There's a two-part equation for those who sit in darkness to hear the gospel. There's got to be goers, And there's got to be senders. So what are the marks of the goers? What are the things that are attributes of the goers? Number one, they got to go. They can't do it from home. Praise God for Skype. Praise God for Zoom. But someone's got to go. We saw last night when we were looking at Acts chapters one, uh, chapter 1, verses 6 through 8, the model for the New Testament way that the gospel goes isn't the nations coming to us. It's we go to the nations. That's the new model. The Old Testament model, the nations come to us. The New Testament model, we go to the nations. Someone has to go. And today, those distances are quite far. And the places that they've got to go are quite dangerous. But if the church is to see the gospel in all languages, in all tribes, in all peoples, in all nations, someone's got to go. And by God's grace from within this congregation... In the next 10 years, man, I hope there are many that are raised up from this body that feel, I read this passage, I cannot get around these words. I'm going to go meet with the church elders and I'm going to go tell them, this is what I think God has laid out in my heart and I'm going to let them steer me in this decision. But they're going to walk away from dreams. They're going to walk away from hopes. They're going to walk away from giftings. They're going to go where no gospel message has ever been. Someone's got to go. And number two, the goers need to know their Bible. If they're going to go and they're going to preach, what are they going to preach? They're going to preach the gospel, but they're also going to preach good theology or bad theology. You've got to know your Bible. Man, I was so encouraged listening to the campus movement, guys. The faithfulness of what is going on. That sinners, that those who have never heard, that those who have never been exposed to the gospel are getting saved. But they're not only getting saved, they're getting discipled. Brothers and sisters, we don't need people on the mission field that are excited about missions and spicy food and dressing up in different clothes and getting more stamps in their passport. We don't need that. We need people who know their Bibles. We need people who understand what to preach when they get there. It's good to have zeal, but zeal without knowledge is death. We must have goers who go, but they know their Bible, and they know what they're going to do when they get there. So they've got to know their Bible. And then number three, goers need to preach and teach this message that has been entrusted to them. They've got to preach and teach. They've got to share this message. So one of the implications that you can draw from that, if you're going to preach and teach and anybody's going to understand, you've got to know their language. You've got to learn their language. And you've got to learn their language to full fluency. One of the things that we've discovered down at Radius is that when you ask any missionary, well, not any, but most missionaries, are you fluent in the language? Most of them say, yes, I am. But we have started to divide fluency on two sides. Most missionaries, when they're talking about fluency, they're talking about market fluency. They know how to get their oil changed. They know how to have a conversation with people. They know how to speak about the weather. But then there's worldview fluency where you can teach Romans chapters 5, 6, 7, and 8. You can talk about the weather patterns. You can use all the aspects of that language to bring the glory of our God to bear on those people. That's worldview fluency. That's where we must be if we're going to communicate the gospel. They've got to preach and teach. Let's have them preach and teach well. Let's have them know the culture that they're speaking into. Good pastors, the world over, know their 
culture. They know what they're speaking into. They know what's happening, the current events, what's happened in Mississippi the last three days, what our nation is going through over in Iran right now, what's happening with Ukraine and Russia, what's happening on the campuses of the colleges that are nearby here, what are the local events. You better know these things before you step into a foreign culture. We don't parachute in and bring the gospel and somehow people mysteriously want to hear this. No, no, no. You earn the right to speak. You know your audience. They've got to go. They've got to know their Bible. They've got to preach and teach, and they've got to preach and teach in a language that they can understand. They've got to know their culture. But then there's this wonderful other verse. In verse 15, it says this, Romans 10, 15. And how are they to preach unless they're sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. There's the goers... This is who we train down at Radius, the school that I lead, those who will go, who will take the gospel to the ends of the earth, and this will take 10, 15, 20, 25 years. This is not a short-term endeavor. But then there's the senders. Brothers and sisters, I'm just going to shoot straight with you. Looking around at this room, that's about 90% of you. At Radius, we start looking at someone's age because according to the U.S. military, right around 32 to 35, someone's ability to learn a language starts to tail off. It's just the way the human body is made. Unless you, know, unless you uh, play a musical instrument or you learned another language as an adult, your ability to learn another language starts to tail off. Not drastically. With hard work, that can be prolonged for another 10 years or so. But most of you in here, that door has closed. But there are some of you that it hasn't. But for those who are going to stay, which I'm part of this group now, before I was a goer, now I count myself as a sender. I train those who will go. But for those senders, what does it look like to be a faithful sender? What does it look like to stay here to be a part of this community, to be a part of Cape Bible Church, and to send well. Well, there's three marks to good senders. Number one, if you're taking notes, good senders raise their sons and daughters to be goers. Good senders raise their sons and daughters to be goers. They raise them in such a way to where it's not a shock if they come to them at the end of their high school, middle of their college years, mom and dad, I think the Lord is calling me to go overseas. Yeah, your, mo your mom and I, we can see that. We can see that. We know that because we read to you certain books when we put you to bed at night. We, we can see that because we put an emphasis on that. We had people coming through our home on a regular basis that were people that did the very thing that now you're thinking about doing. There's a famous missionary. His name is John Payton, P-A-T-O-N. The autobiography of John Payton is one of the most powerful missionary biographies out there today. And John Payton would go overseas to the island of what used to be called the New Hebrides. Today it's called Vanuatu. And he made it to Vanuatu and he buried his wife within six months of making it. And then he buried his only child. And he stayed. And he stayed. And he came back to Scotland where he was from. And there was a famous hymn that they would sing in Scotland at that time. And the hymn, the chorus went something like this. Send our sons and daughters glorious to the nations abroad. And Peyton got up and said, everybody likes to sing that song as long as we're talking about somebody else's sons and daughters. Don't talk about mine. Friends, are we raising our sons and daughters as temporary stewardships? This is temporary. And if we have to put you on the plane at St. Louis, we'll do it with tears in our eyes, but we'll be proud of you. We raise them in such a way to where we want them to be goers. We press that into their DNA. Or is this only for someone else's sons and daughters? Good senders raise their sons and daughters to be goers. Number two, good senders live in such a way that the Great Commission affects their life here. Good senders raise their sons and daughters to be goers, but they live in such a way that the Great Commission affects their life here. They drive older cars. They have skinnier 401ks. 
They have smaller houses. Not so that their name can be made great, but for that kid who just came out of the movement ministry, the campus ministry, who's going to take the gospel to the ends of the earth, we're going to get behind that young man. We're going to get behind that young lady. We're going to live in such a way to where our life is crimped. I praise God for the saints from Claremont Emanuel Baptist Church, for Dave Johnson, who had a travel agency, and he helped us get tickets to get to Papua New Guinea for the first three times that we went. And for Jack and Mary Alice Griffin, who had a construction business, and the way that they use their money. And you know what? Jack and Mary Alice Griffin and Dave Johnson are all in heaven. Do you know who they're meeting in heaven? They're meeting Yembiembies. They never met them on this side of the earth. But on that side, they met the fruit of being good senders. Good senders live in such a way to where it affects their life here. There's a famous missionary. His name is William Carey, most people call him the father of modern missions. And when he was getting ready to go to India, first English-speaking man to go to India as a full-time missionary, he's an Englishman, he got together his friends and they started talking about him going to India and they described it as going down a well, that he would go down a well and he would hang on to this rope. And the rope was his home church. And he said, I'm going to go down this well and I'll go down the well as long as you hold the rope. This is where we get this famous phrase for holding the ropes, that we pray for our missionaries. And here's the thing, guys. I firmly believe this, that someday the king will return. Someday the king's coming back. And when he comes back, he's going to ask all of those people, Lord willing, some of those from Campus Movement, Lord willing, some of those from Cape Bible Church, that went down the well, show me your hands. Show me your hands. Show me the scars. Show me what it costs you to take my name to the ends of the earth. But he's also going to ask for all those people at the top of the well. Show me your hands. Don't show me Cape Bible Chapel's hands. Don't show me your Sunday school group. Show me your hands. What did it cost you? Did it cost you anything? Did the Great Commission affect your life here in the slightest? Will you have any scars when the King returns? There's goers and there's senders. Will the senders have scars? Did it cost you to see the gospel go to the ends of the earth? And then finally, number three, good senders are faithful church members. Good senders are faithful church members. The Bible knows nothing of Lone Ranger Christians that go out apart from the local church. It also knows nothing of faithful Christians who are not faithful to the local church. Christians apart from the local church is a modern-day phenomenon. I used to, and I realize we just got through COVID, but uh, YouTube church, Vimeo church, uh, church where we watch it through a screen, that's kind of like having a Skype marriage. It doesn't work so well. It has some downsides to it. Church in person and being a faithful member of a local church is what we are called to be. We are the people of God. And there are seasons where we are sick. There are seasons where we have certain illnesses that will keep us away. Absolutely. But faithful church members have always been the DNA of good missionary churches. We had a couple, uh, Marv and Shirley Friedman. And I remember the day that we got sent out in 2003. And they laid hands on us at the church uh, on the top. And they prayed for us. And they sent us off. And the next day... We drove to LAX, we hopped on the airplane, and we headed to Papua New Guinea. And Marvin Shirley Friedman, all through our college years, as we were faithful members in that local church, would always sit in the second row, and they would sit on the right-hand side in the pew that was there. And I praise God, 13 years later, when we came back, Marvin Shirley Friedman, there they were, second row, still there. Guys, we hammer into the radius students. Where you are going, it will cost you much. And it'll take you 10, 15, 20 years. Be faithful. Be faithful. Stay the course. Don't leave. Don't quit until a church is planted. What of the senders? What of those of you that are here? Will you be here when they get back? Will you be a faithful church member? Well, the music's getting kind of loud. Well, the drums are kind of strong. Oh, man. Biden, Trump. 
COVID, shots, no shots. Brothers, sisters, if the gospel isn't preached from this pulpit, you have every right to find another church. But if the gospel is faithfully proclaimed from here, will you be a faithful church member? Good senders are faithful church members. This is what we see pressing the gospel to the ends of the earth. Good senders and good goers working together to get the gospel to those places that still have yet to hear. I'll close with this. When we were in Yembe Yembe, uh, we had presented the gospel, and two weeks after we presented the gospel, we were uh, going to bed at night. It was about 10.30, and um, I remember the Yembe's coming to us, and we built our house. Our house was up on these huge eight-foot posts, uh, really high off the ground. You had a lot of snakes, and you had a lot of critters that you didn't want getting into your house. And so they helped us build our house. It had bark walls and it had a plywood floor and we had a corrugated aluminum roof where we would catch the water and then we would put it into a water tank and that's how we survived out there for long periods of time. And so the Yembis knew exactly because they helped me build the house where uh, we went to the bathroom. They, they, they thought that was horrible that we would go to the bathroom in the same place every time. That's so disgusting. We go to a different place every time. Um, and then they knew where the kitchen was. They also knew where our bedroom was, where I slept at night. And so they had this long pole, and they would come under our house, and they would hit the bottom of the floor if they needed to get me, and they thought I was asleep. And I mean, you'd be laying in bed, and you, you would wake up to this pole hitting the bottom of the floor, and you thought it was Armageddon. Like, it, it just it startled you dr- dramatically. And so late at night, two weeks after we present the gospel, whop, whop, bottom of the floor, uh, Yembies are outside. So I go to the window, and I yell out, uh, who is it? And it's a typical Yembe response. It's me, it's me. <laughs> I know, it's you. Who are you? It's me, your tribal father. Oh, my. Okay, so this is, this is a big deal. So I get up, go outside, and Yembe Yembe, it's really rude to shine your flashlight on people's faces. You ruin their night vision. So you shine it on their feet. And they can recognize all 1,200 of each other by their feet. That's why they can track everybody through the jungle so easily. And so I'm shining it on their feet, and I cannot figure out who in the world these guys are. And there's seven of them. And so I'm inching the flashlight up, and I I recognize that belly button, that pair of shorts, and working the way up to where I recognize, okay, these are seven people who have professed faith. These are seven Christians. And so I said, guys, what's going on? Did somebody get bit by a snake? Somebody's got bad malaria. Uh, This is how they usually come and get me because of an emergency. And they said, no, 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 it's nothing like that. We want to know when we're going. And I said, what do you mean? They said, well, if the book is true, and if, the book, if we read in the book correctly, then our sister village, Changriman, which is three mountain ranges away, they're going to the place of fire, right? Yeah, that's true. So when are we going? Will it be tomorrow or the next day? Two weeks old in the faith. When are we going? When are we going? Brothers and sisters, I got back to the United States in 2016, and I had a really wealthy church and a really wealthy businessman come to me and ask me for their missions conference and say that they would fly from Yembe Yembe, our elders and our elders' wives, over for their missions conference and ask me if I would do that. And I said, no way in the world. There is no way in the world I would do it. Number one is because just getting on an airliner would blow their mind. Like, it would be too much. They would land here and just, this is insane. This is just so different. The carpet would blow their mind. The number two reason is because, and I told the wealthy businessman this. I didn't have the heart to say it to the church, but I told the wealthy businessman, brother, you don't, you don't know what you're asking you think this would be a good thing, but you have to remember the Yembis who would yell out, and this still happens, I'll be there in two weeks, in church, some poor elder in training when he starts to read the text and then he teaches and it's something that is theologically unsound, the ladies in the church will yell from the back, the canoe's turning, the canoe's turning, and this poor guy's just dying. They will let you know what's happening from the back. The Yembis would get up at a missions conference And they would say something like this. You've had this book for how long? How long have you had this talk? When are you going? When are you going? Brothers and sisters, that would be my closing admonition to you. 
God has raised up goers and senders. And he has raised up this particular church that is very unique. There are things about your church and things about the dynamics here that are very encouraging. Capitalize on the potential. Don't let potential be always five years out, 10 years out, 15 years out. When are we going? When are we raising up from our midst those who will take the gospel to the ends of the earth and the senders who will stand behind them till the day they come back? And may our God be praised among all nations, all peoples, all tribes, all languages as a result. Let me pray. Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for a dedicated two days to think about the heartbeat of our God, that all peoples would praise you. Father, there are many passages that are instructive to us, but Lord, give us ears to hear, to understand, and then give us hearts that motivate us to action. Father, motivate those senders in here to raise their sons and daughters in such a way to where they are the ones who may someday take the gospel to the ends of the earth. Raise them up, Father, to where they use the resources that you've given them to see the gospel furthered. Raise them up to where they are faithful to their local church and from that local church the gospel emanates, not only in this environment, not only in their neighborhoods, not only overseas, but in every aspect of their life. And then, Father, raise up the goers. Raise up the young men and women who will hazard much for your glory, who will lay down much for the sake of your name. And, Father, we will honor and praise you to the end of our days for however you will use these meager tools, these instruments of your glory to bring about what only you can bring about. We praise you that salvation is only of you. Father, save those who still stand in darkness, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.